seeing ourselves as separate from one another, as separate from nature, as dominant over nature, as dominant over others, having supremacy, and that view that we are rational, self-interested beings is what leads to the ecological, political, and economic challenges that we're seeing today. We are not those beings. We are not rational, self-interested beings. It's the economists who have told us that we are. What else are we? What else could we be? What is a new view of humanity or an other view of humanity that would be more helpful and constructive during this time? Hadass Tier once told me, if we compress all of humanity's history in 24 hours, capitalism would only emerge at seconds to midnight. We have had economic systems before capitalism, and we can have economic systems post-capitalism. All of the operating principles in capitalism, the domination over nature, the exchange paradigm at the heart of it, the view of ourselves as rational, self-interested beings, the disconnection and lack of democracy within the workplace, the exploitation, the harm, all of these are not providing us with human and planetary health. We can go into them, we can rewrite them, we can challenge them, we can rethink them, and we can move to a post-capitalist economic system, and we need to. The old world is ending. And we have the opportunity to rethink everything. This is a show about the systemic problems in our world. And the real solutions we have today. To transition from an apocalyptic storm of war, scarcity, and ecological collapse. To create an abundantly advanced collaborative society. That sustains all life. You may think it's an impossible dream. But the alternative is an inevitable nightmare. We're your hosts, Matt Holton, Amanda Smith, and Zachary Marlowe. And together, we can move past this economic absurdity and come together to actualize our collective potential to create something completely new. We are Mindless Society. Of all the people that I've met through this online community, and I met a lot. I'm very gregarious. My adaptation to the end of the world and the splintering of our social relationships is to cultivate connection with other people. But of all the people that I've found and connected with in this sphere, making content, talking the talk, blasting people with, uh, with memes, blowing their minds about the failures of our current system and hinting at this world on the other side, uh, the folks down at Upstream, I think, are the, just the most simpatico, the closest comrades that I've found, the people out there that I feel the most just harmonic with the most adult, the most uh, responsive and less, the least reactive. Just people out there that as soon as I found them, I thought these people are great. I love what they're doing. I love their show. I love the memes that they're putting out and what they're doing on social media to actually use these platforms to educate people. And so I, I don't have like anything planned. I don't have like a specific topic for this episode because I just know we're, we're our family basically. You know, like I've talked to Della, we met very randomly in LA and I was able to film some fantastic scenes with her for the movie and we just immediately just just clicked you know I've been talking with Robbie as well online and you know I just feel this the sense of kinship and camaraderie with these people out there every day doing the thing you know like De like Della was like talking me through my life crisis the other day and it was so helpful and it was just like I I just love the feeling of coming home that I've found in these radical extremist <laughs> groups and people out there just, you know, 
putting themselves against the whole of society. I, I've never been able to make friends easier. I've never made, uh, you know, found a community with more easy smiles and, and instant connections. And so, yeah, I just, I just want to open it up to Robbie and to Della, two good friends, two people in this sphere, doing the thing, talking the talk and walking the walk about their show and their philosophy. And, and just basically, I'd, li I'd love to, to get it, to open us up here with a simple question to just get us snowballing into being ourselves. What does it mean to go upstream? Robert, what does it mean to go upstream? What would you say? Uh, well, uh, maybe I'll, I'll sort of bring back the lens a little bit and start with how we came across the concept of going upstream, um, which was many years ago, as we were formulating the podcast, Della and and I, we were living in the UK. Um, Della was a student at Schumacher College. And uh, this uh, speaker, a guest speaker, traveled through from actually the Bay Area. So we immediately had a, a connection with him. Della, what was his name? I don't remember. Okay. You'll have to edit that out. Just kidding. Um, well, it doesn't really matter. Who is, this, he... who is this crucial character on our life journey that <laughs> whole trajectory and spin and forever I'm changed actually, us? I'm making this know. whole story up. <laughs> <laughs> this was about, I don't know, like 2015. So my memory's shot these days when my executive functioning is not what it used to be. But um, so this guy came through, the speaker, a guest speaker from San Francisco, and he gave a talk. Uh, and he kept using the upstream metaphor and it was the first time I heard it and it really clicked. Um, the idea being, um, you're going upstream from sort of the downstream everyday fires that we see in life and, uh, asking what's the root cause of all of them, what's connecting them all. Is there something connecting them all? And we were thinking of a name for the podcast at that time. We had like some pretty, uh, wonky names like economics for transition and like some other stuff but then uh upstream just like it made sense and it clicked and Della I don't know if you want to actually uh tell the story of upstream we used to have it at the beginning of every podcast but it's a little bit long so we we ended up cutting it but uh, Della does a great job of sort of um, creating a little vignette of it Lewis Fox I think was his name and he's a producer of the story of stuff the video He's mm. the one who reminded us of it. So yes, it was Robert's first time hearing it. But for myself, I had heard it when I was uh, in sexual violence prevention inter intervention in San Jose, California, my first job out of college. And the way that I heard it was from public health. And here's the metaphor. Imagine that you're standing on the bank of a river and you see someone float by who's drowning. So you jump in and help pull them to shore. But then you look up and you see others floating down the river drowning. So you jump in and pull them to shore. Pretty soon, there's all these people floating down the river drowning. So you call for help, you get others involved, and eventually, some of you have to go upstream to figure out why is everyone falling in in the first place. So this was the metaphor that I had heard when I was a rape crisis counselor about the importance of not just supporting survivors, but going upstream to the root causes of violence. And we took on this metaphor for the economic challenges of our time, and we've been on that upstream journey ever since. And I'd love to ask you, Zach and Matt, what do you see when you go upstream? What comes up for you when I ask that mm. question? Matt, do you, you want to go? First? <laughs> oh, and I wanted I wanted to to mention a, a, our dearly beloved Amanda is uh, out today. Mm. She's 
uh, either has a stomach bug or is on a wild whirlwind spiritual journey, wind bathing and standing on mountaintops and doing soul searching. I'm not really sure which. It could be a combination of both, but Amanda is, is absent today. Um, so going upstream, I mean, it's getting to the root cause, you know? It's cutting all the bullshit. It's going. It's it's stopping this way of seeing all these interconnected, these disconnected uh, crises and problems of abortion and you know animal rights and environmental rights and racism and sexism and poverty as if they're all different things. And I think I was thinking this last night. It was a very dark thought that if I didn't understand that there is a larger root cause driving all of these problems in the world that makes traffic and you know air pollution and violence and people just being stupid and angry all the time if i didn't understand that there was a root cause driving that and it was connected to something larger i would be violent i would be dangerous i would not be a good person i would be antisocial you know but i understand that i understand and know better and that is what enables me to have compassion on the everyday level is to see that all these problems are really driven by not some crazy flaw in human nature, not our design. We're not supposed to live like this, that it's it's the root of a system, really. It's it's a mode of, of being, a, a disconnection from nature, from each other, you know, mediated through this infinitely reductive, mechanized mediation of money and markets and, you know, these systems that we create to to not have to connect with each other. As I was having a conversation with a friend the other day, we were talking about debt. And that's like really the root, you know, the, the beneath money even is this idea of debt, this idea of, you know, simultaneously you owe me, you know, uh, but also that we're, we're square, you know, like that you don't owe me anything. Like I, I go through the ro- the routines of this game that we're playing, you know, I get this from you. And of course I'm being me, I'm going to get more out of it. And then I have this rule set and this system that says, I don't know you shit after this. We're done. We're not connected. We're not related. And I think that's really, everything comes out of that. What about you, Matt? <laughs> um, so going upstream, what that means to me, you know, it's kind of interesting. I mean, a lot of the work that I've done is I've, I've done to try to kind of just make my own life better in a sense, you know, because I, I had a lot of struggles growing up and everything. And then I could kind of see myself going off the deep end in some respects, especially when I was younger, like in my twenties, especially as far as like alcohol and, uh, you know, binging and just, um, you know, behavior that wasn't in my best interest or the best interest of others, you know, a lot of the time. Um, but on the other hand, it's like, I didn't, I didn't really like what I was doing. I didn't like myself as a person a lot of the time. And and a lot of this has kind of been a quest for myself, you know, to try to mitigate, you know, some of the, some of the bad habits that I picked up over the years, essentially. And, um, you know, in the process of that, I think a, a lot of it, you know, was it kind of revealed to me and, and, uh, you know, sections and courses over the years that a lot of the problems are, are that, that I've experienced in my life really kind of have roots in our economic system, you know, and I wasn't really aware of that when I was younger and, and when I was acting out and, you know, like Zach was saying, being violent in, in numerous ways in my life, you know, whether it be towards myself or others or, you know, just in, in, general circumstances, not really taking care of myself or being responsible in, in numerous ways or, you know, uh, being uh, good to myself or the planet in general. 
you know, as, as you could say. But, you know, the more I learned, the more I, I felt like, you know, I, I really, it, it was empowering, really, to learn about the root causes of these things. And as almost as insurmountable, uh, you know, problems as they seem, it really kind of gives you a renewed vigor to try to do something about it a lot of the time too, you know, because, because at that point you're like, well, wow, this stuff really does make a difference. You know, if I can make it, if I can turn some of these things around in my own life, maybe here and there, or just kind of learn some of these things, maybe I can share some of this stuff with other people as well. You know, that some of these root economic causes of our struggles and woes in society, because I'm not the only person who has gone through, you know, some shit in their life and had some tough times. And I wouldn't wish a lot of, you know, what I've experienced on a lot of other people. And I and I don't want other people to have to experience that. You know, I want other people to have to live I mean, the opportunity to live a, a happy, fulfilling life, you know, and have the things that they need and, and have loving, you know, families and relationships and community and things like that. And, and to me, a lot of it kind of comes back to creating that, you know, because that's, I think, a lot of the absence of what we've had in our society is, is, is the profit motive and the monetary system in particular have stripped away, you know, the compassion and the empathy and the cooperation and the community a lot of the time, which is what I was lacking, you know, growing up. And, and a lot of that to me is, is finding a way to reinstate that, you know, not in, not just in my own life, but in, you know, just the world around me in general to help people come together and create, you know, cooperative community situations where people actually do start caring about each other again and do, you know, create mutual aid systems or, you know, compassion and empathy and start displaying those things. How can we create the systems and structures, you know, and mitigate the damage we've done at the same time, you know, that enable us to create you know, a better way of life for us all. You know, and that's, that's kind of a lot of the motivation where I've had and where I've gone with us over the years, um, you know, just to help create a better, better situation, both for myself and others and coming back to the root cause of this, you know, economic system. So hopefully that answers your question to a degree. I, I just want to tack one little thing onto that. Um, Cause as I was listening to that, I was just looking at Raymond's name on the uh, screen here and I remembered an interchange I had at the grocery store last night with this butcher, this really tired guy, black guy in this real poor neighborhood of Atlanta. And he was just really sweating and working. And I, I just waited for a while for him to help me out. And then he gave, like weighed some fish up for me. And, and I said, how you doing, brother? And he said, you know, can't complain. I said, well, you, you always can, but it's best not to. And then, you know, I, I, I said basically like we should complain about the big things, not the, not the little things, you know, we really shouldn't be you know making our own life this wound and this thing this, this this problem that we inflict on other people that we should be really focusing on collective problems and i think that's that's one of the the root issues is that disconnection that people don't really focus on the big thing and they think that to focus on the big problems is like a burden that people are always asking me like you got to take time for yourself and you got to do this and it's like what are you talking about this is for me like me focusing on bettering myself is focusing on bettering the whole for all of humanity and in this existential moment, that there is no self self love or self worth that's not taking a bubble bath in a doomed planet. You know, it, it's coming together and radically restructuring life. It's taking that impulse, that that frustration and that antisocial impulse to say fuck this all the time, ten thousand times a day, and direct that at the system itself, not at all these little individual pieces. Yeah, as as you two are talking, um, it's really making me think about how like this whole idea of going upstream and to me it's also sort of like 
a lot of this is very, very close. Like a lot of what we're talking about um, is very closely linked to viewing the world through sort of like a Marxist, communist, socialist lens, any, any of those frames that you prefer to use. Like for me, when I first discovered this idea of alienation, of, of how, you know, Marxist alienation, how we're alienated from our work under capitalism. When I first learned about exploitation, these were, this was through like reading a comic book about, about Karl Marx's ideas. I was um, in college and I had never, I studied philosophy and anthropology and never actually spent more than two seconds hearing about Karl Marx. Um, and so I, I did it alone. I, I learned about this stuff alone on my own time. And it was such, so, so liberating because it gave me like a, a framework within which to situate my, my feelings of alienation and exploitation and misery <laughs> at times, you know, like it really <laughs> provided that structure and that framework. And once once you learn about that, there's actually a, a, a body of thought, there's a, a movement that stretches back centuries of people who have felt the same way and who've struggled for the same things and fought for, um, you know, liberation from these systems. It's, it's really, yeah, it's just really liberating. And you can't think of the world, it's almost a blessing and a curse, right? Because you can't stop thinking of the world in mm. this like, systemic structural upstream way like you think of everything being connected to this one series of issues as challenges these problems that we have which is capitalism and i i don't know i feel like i've kind of turned into like the kind of person who's just like out with friends having a beer and i'll always <laughs> like always find a way to slip it in like oh like we're we're complaining about our landlords ding 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 like oh you're complaining yeah, you're like, about your boss like, hey, ding 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 you know, there's a name for that there's like <laughs> yeah, it's it's like when you said capitalism i, I just pictured like uh, the Wee's playhouse thing like oh you said the magic word you said the magic word <laughs> like everything spins around and all the furniture comes to life yeah i mean yeah. it's everywhere and and like my yeah. friends are tired of it honestly they're just like they'll just glaze over a lot of the time when i'm i'm ranting about it and it's just like it just become people can only compartmentalize it because they have no overriding sense of theory or a structural train of thought they just think it's like a thing you're talking about or like it's a, a, a I don't know, a hobby or something. It's very weird to me. <laughs> My wife's like, oh, here we go again. <laughs> Matt, Matt talking about his moneyless society. <laughs> How much better everything would be. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a question for you, Della. Um, uh, and anybody can take this as well because it's a big question. And it's what bothers me most. It's not ocean acidification, species extinction, rank exploitation those things bother me horrendously but the thing that keeps them going is that people don't get it more broadly or they don't personally care about these things and they're able to uh file them away in the cognitive dissonance so what do you, what do you think is the the upstream cause of that disconnection that allows people to actively fight against their own self-interest to care about issues that affect them all well Somebody brought up the the concept liberating. I think it might have been you, Robert. But 
Um, that reminded me of liberation psychology, which is something that I'm interested in right now. And it, it is a space where folks are really asking upstream questions, thinking systemically, and also having this Marxist analysis. And so I'm, I'm imagining, you know, someone entering a therapy room and they share with their therapist, I'm, I'm not feeling well you know, whether it's anxiety or depression or sense of hopelessness. And if a therapist doesn't have this liberatory lens that, that we're all exploring today, then they may medicate them or they may give them some mindfulness practice that would help pacify their difficult emotions in a exploitative and extractive economy, right? But when one has a liberatory lens and one can connect uh, grief, anger, precariousness, suffering with the systemic challenges that we face and the reasons for those systemic challenges, then it truly liberates people. And that can also feel overwhelming. I know people have told me, you know, be careful not to destroy someone's worldview without offering them a new one which is, I think, one of the things that all of us on this Love call that. share, that we we aren't just saying capitalism, 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 but we're also offering beautiful visions of moneyless society and, you know, a green transition that is just and equitable, for example, or a universal basic income that is truly um, supportive of progressive uh, movements. So I think that we, we are doing both, but I do think that um, perhaps folks haven't been asked those liberal questions and they don't have the people to guide them in their exploration of their own pain who have a Marxist analysis or a systemic analysis or however we want to frame that. But I think that's one of the barriers to what you're talking about. And, and if I could just add to that too, like when you were talking about liberation psychology, I kept thinking about how, um, and, and then you were talking about like somebody going into a therapist's office or maybe going to their sangha to do meditation or something like that. And oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes in those spaces, what's being done is people are being taught coping strategies, um, being taught how to cope with the world as it is. And again, I just want to emphasize mm -hmm. there's lots of types of Buddhism and not all of them are like this. Not all therapists are like this, but I think it's safe to say that most of them probably are. Um, looking at things from that sort of individuated perspective, whereas um, what Marxism, what liberation theology or liberation um, themed therapists, like they're really exploring um, like material conditions. What material conditions are you existing within, which are creating these illnesses and how can you like also how can you cope with them but simultaneously um change the conditions and oftentimes it's really hard and i think that's why so many people are so alienated and unable like you were you were saying zach like unable to um even care about this stuff even though i don't think it's true that people don't care i think people hold this shit deep in their bodies and it like uh you know it festers <laughs> but um, like people don't have agency, you know, capitalist hegemony has made it so that people don't have agency over their own lives. And because of that, they begin to, they either check out or they narrativize their life experience in ways that they have control over through 
I don't know, moralizing about movies or creating these insane conspiracy theories like QAnon that gives them a purpose and gives them some kind of agency, like they're the subject and they can actually figure out like, you know, on the, 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 the chalkboard, like all the connections and then they can have a solution. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it stems from this uh, lack of a material analysis in our society. I just want to do a direct response to that real quick. Um, I was getting a massage the other day and I was in her office or studio was this book, The Body Keeps the Score. Mm. And I read just read a few sentences of it and I kind of got the gist of the the ideas of the book that I've discussed with other people. But I read a simple sentence that was like, basically that um, theory or I, 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 um, insight doesn't generally uh, change people because they're not dealing with a lack of awareness generally. It's the fact that there is a material physical structure of trauma that it physically crystallizes into the brain and it forms into these trauma reactions that throw us into fight or flight where you know it's like uh, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face you know well we're being punched in the face by the by the you know localized microdose of trauma that is a conflict oriented competitive society and so i think when people deal with these sorts of issues arise you know like the big the big things that people are so afraid to deal with that they deal with every day that the majority of the stress in their life comes from this like 80% of uh, in 80% of countries in the world that money is the largest cause of stress and yet we're not discussing the use of the continuation or even the alteration of money you know so and it stresses people out to try to think about that stuff like i was listening to videos earlier today about quantitative easing just scratching my head and then i realized like oh that's just a bunch of words they made up to disguise their scam it's the same shit but yeah i mean basically there is a material analysis to ideas that ideas of in and of themselves do have a physical material structure in the brain and they are reinforced structurally. So when people get lost in this sort of cultural, idealistic, liberal uh, view of the world as a warring culture and you know, the reason today is uh, that the things are in crisis today is because of a lack, a lack of masculinity and the feminine state. You know, these all these idealistic, stupid things that any Marxist or structuralist or systemic thinker will just say, like, you're just you're just lost in the mire, man. You're just playing the game. You know, that you're just you're looking at the puppets and not the strings or even, you know, not just necessarily the strings, but the conditions that put those puppeteers on the street that make them have to do what they do to make their change, to make their food, to help their families. Ultimately, this economic orientation that that's where the culture arises from as this projection of its of its deeper self as as capitalism is this great projection of our trauma that has metastasized into this mechanistic you know systematic force that we call normal you know the dealing with the issues that were faced you know, it's it's very difficult for one person to act in a manner that really makes a difference, you know, on an individual level. Um, you know, it's it's really more of a, not just a community, but like a, a large scale community that really kind of needs to come together and, and work together to solve these problems, you know, because the, the things that we need to do and create can't be created by one person. You know, we're talking lots and lots of people, you know, probably decades of, of labor that are going to have to come together to really, you know, create the systems and structures that we're talking about to, you know, kind of 
build the beginnings of a you know some sort of a post scarcity economy or society like that but on the other hand yeah it's like and and a lot of them aren't even really aware of these ideas they know that there's a problem but like you were saying too you, you know Della don't don't destroy somebody's worldview without providing a new one a lot of it is kind of too painful I think for people to really uh, cope with and understand because there's no viable solution, you know, that's right there for them. There's nothing that they can really do today to combat, you know, that, that problem or, or, or really take action, or at least nothing that they feel that they really know, you know, can make a difference. And, and that way, you know, there's, there's, it's, it's almost just kind of like, I don't want to say giving up, but it's just kind of like being being defeated before you've even began, essentially. You know what I mean? Because you don't really know what to do. You don't know what what direction, where to go or what actions to take, because those solutions simply haven't, you know, been presented or aren't at the for, you know, forefront of people's minds a lot of time. But then it kind of goes the opposite direction into, you know, denial and avoidance, you know, and just kind of placating. I think a lot of people, you know, just essentially you know, pacify themselves with television and, you know, uh, food or drugs or, you know, sex, a lot of these things that, you know, make them feel better in the moment, but in the long term, really aren't, you know, any sort of solutions. They're, you know, they're just things that, you know, end up passing the time and make us feel a little bit better temporarily. And, um, you know, it's, unfortunately, it's kind of that instant gratification, you know, society kind of, feedback loop kicking in a little bit there i think also to where there's just you know there's not enough there's not enough real solutions at people's fingertips for them to really take action you know and on the other hand the it's just such a huge and daunting problem that people just really don't know where to begin with a lot of it as well you know so it's kind of like a double-edged sword there i think too that's why i think y'all's show is so valuable and why i think your um just your voice in general Della and you know you too Robert on the more on the back end it's great that we get to hear your voice more because more Della's mostly on the show and you know I I've I've come to learn you from your tweets and observations online and the things you curate and share and that's an that's a very interesting way to get to know somebody but yeah I mean you're what you're doing Della you're you're giving this very warm and gentle and inviting uh <laughs> hand and extension to say come destroy everything that you know and recreate it anew and that's <laughs> that's very powerful to me that it's not like this it's not based in anger it's not based in destruction it is based in a desire for love and you know generosity and curiosity and you know inviting people gently in there sometimes i can be too uh aggressive and too focused on the negative because people won't even recognize it but i think that you are someone who's very good at bringing people into that space gently kindly can you um talk about more your sort of philosophy and belief and and how how you navigate this space of like you're i mean we're dealing with and juggling with you know the reality that a child dies of hunger every five seconds yeah dead child child just died you know like we're dealing with that we're dealing with literally the end of life on earth and we have to be super soldiers we have to be completely calm cool collected we cannot get emotional we cannot uh, lash out or we lose and it's just it's so frustrating all the time to have the logic on your side to know what you know to have experienced it to have it ingrained in my dna through hard experience and to have read all these books and talked to all these thinkers and philosophers and professors and you know and people still just deny it because of emotional things. Yeah. So a few a few thoughts on that, and thank you for noticing that uh, that 
style in this work. Um, one of one thing that comes up is that I got to do a visioning practice, and, and I'm sure you all have been practicing visioning. I know a lot of people are talking about like moral imagination and visioning, and you know, like if we can't imagine a post-capitalist world or a moneyless society, like how can we make it a reality? So flexing our muscle and building our muscle of imagination is really in vogue right now in a great way. And so I was doing this visioning practice of imagining the post-capitalist world, and I had this sense that um, we've that Robert and I have talked on the show that there's a global of capitalism with many islands of alternatives. And, you know, some of them have names like new economy, next economy, um, communism, eco-socialism, uh, Buddhist economics, right? Feminist economics, indigenous economics. There's so many, right? And that we, we rise these islands out of the global sea of capitalism and connect them. And I had this real sense in this visioning practice that the old world was simply falling away and that the new world that was coming into being and, and these islands raising out of the global sea was just so much more fun and inviting and joyful and regenerative and just and, and you know, all the things thriving that more people were drawn to it. And that, so that was a really inspiring vision that everyone could be a part of it. Um, and this also relates to things that I've learned like around how a more equal society is better for everyone. Thanks to Kate Pickett and Richard Wilkinson's work looking at, you know, social and well-being and health indicators and saying a more equal society is better for everyone. So it's like a win-win, right? And, and also this idea that Robert and I really explored in the documentary we made about homo economicus, this idea that, you know, are we as mainstream economics would have us believe rational self-interested beings who only want to maximize our own self-interest, right? And I think that, and I want to speak for Robert, but I think one of the things I came to in that, in that piece of journalism and research was that we do have the capacity to be self, self-interested and egotistical, but we also have the capacity to be homo donans, right? Like gift-giving beings or homo cooperativists, like caring and cooperative beings. We have both capacities within us. So it's about which one do we want to activate? This reminds me of that Alexander Solnitsyn quote, the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. So for me, one of the things that I try to do is like, how could I activate the intrinsic values of cooperation, of care, care for nature, care for one another in myself as I move through the world, particularly as I move through a very extrinsically motivated world? And how do I also activate that culturally? Like, what are the rituals and practices and ways of working together that are more cooperative, transparent, democratic, just, equitable, and regenerative? So I think that's that's another thing that I do. And then one last thing. I'm thinking of this, another quote, uh, Robert Persig from Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. He starts the book with, if we tear down a factory, but we don't destroy the quality of thinking that created it, a new factory will simply pop up in its place. If we take down a dictatorship, but we don't destroy the quality of thinking that created it, a new one will simply pop up in its place. So I just center that in terms of revolution and systems change and all the work that we're doing, that we do need to find these ways of relating with one another that are, are deeply not extractive or exploitative or alienating or unjust. And so to bring that new paradigm or that different paradigm into all the work that we do so but i don't know if any of you have any other thoughts on that or a different perspective because i know there's like a pluralistic way of seeing this movement well first of all i just i love your uh, your rotating carousel of quotes you have you always have a quote for every occasion that's a very nice quality um i just i was thinking about this last night and that really what what you were talking about with a lot of that really um reminded me of uh, the film Zeitgeist moving forward, 
talking about that section about human nature, where, you know, Richard Wilkinson was in that section. And, you know, really human nature is human behavior and it's conditioned and culturally reinforced. And I think I was thinking about this last night, kind of doing a little of that visioning, thinking about this conversation and going upstream and just kind of feeling the waters move in their direction. And I was just thinking about Jacques Fresco, who was a one of, I, I think really truly like the, the person that I have found that I think just gets it the most. And I, I, I hate to feel like I'm Bible banging or anything like that when I talk about people like this, because it's like, this is a human being that understood things so powerfully and had such a revelation in so many aspects of life in so many, and it manifested itself in such an, an interesting place that he had this deep well of like spiritual insight and understanding into humanness that is runs between us all and the conditions that create personality and life and structure. And that for him manifested in this very technical scientific uh, attempt to recreate society, you know, not to, not to solve these little individual issues and invent this and invent that to fix problems, but to invent a society and to design society itself. But I think more so and more of more importance than the actual automated construction machines and airplanes and energy systems and things he designed is the essential philosophy we are environmental beings, that we are, as he often said, products of our environment. And I would take that even a step further and say we are our environment. We do not exist unto ourselves. You know, the, the microbiota in our gut is comprised of millions of billions of, life, or, of life, life organisms and systems and living things working together. There is no such thing as an individual, you know, which is funny. And it's interesting that, you know, the capitalist system is so anti-individual in a way because it, it does not treat and meet every individual's needs as an individual, it smashes them into these factory settings so that they can, you know, be churned out into a, a machine for producing more products. But ultimately that I think is the philosophy that we are products of our environment. We are our environment and that to change human behavior is to create an environment and a condition that reinforces itself through this regenerative process of culture of, of, you know, human, uh, ritual of how we do this, how we do that, ultimately reinforced through our economic processes to create that culture that reinforces those behaviors that we want to have. Like I, I think about this a lot. I was reading this book, The Great Law of Peace, about the Iroquois Confederacy, which I consider one of the most advanced societies that ever existed. And it was actually a direct inspiration for the United States, this confederated system of smaller systems that work together. Only they made it work. They, we, we have this Kmart version of the, the Iroquois Confederacy where, <laughs> where they said that there are parts of humanity that we can never just work out, you know, and maybe with, uh, you know, transhumanism, we can get that stuff out. But it's like the instinct that the cheetah has to kill is not a sin. It is its essence, you know. So there are parts of us that we can never just fully work out and we need to design them out. We need to reinforce our culture, our behavior, our community to make sure that those values that we want to exhibit and base our society on are exhibited and are reinforced and fed into and, and given room to breathe and grow and form into you know, ever more beautiful formulations and creations of that you know, ethic, that idea, that value that we, that we, select, uh, we collectively align ourselves with to say, this is us. As, as uh, Charles Eisenstein said, money is the story of us. And I think going beyond that, we need, we need a totally new story, you know, and that's what we're trying to create. As, as you were talking, um, I've been watching uh, Reservation Dogs on Hulu. It's a really sweet, heartfelt show about like a young group of kids that are living on um, a, a Native American 
uh, reservation. I'm not quite sure where it is, but um, the there's this episode that's all about death and grieving, and they give you a little bit of glimpse into like just you know one facet, one part of a certain indigenous response to death and grief, and it got me thinking um, about how we as a society sort of deal with death and grief if we do it all and um i guess it, it then you know it, it leads me to think of like I, th I think maybe earlier in my sort of um radicalization i guess we could we, you use the term radical extremist in in your introduction zach and so i'll just i'll, I'll bring that oh, back. yeah we're all radical extremists here <laughs> all of us it's okay we're, we're you're in a safe place yeah you can you can uh you can unfurl your flag there okay. you go um it made me think about how i used to think that like there's going to be some sort of like all-encompassing there there could be some kind of all-encompassing solution and i think sometimes we get stuck in this space of thinking that um i don't know like by dismantling capitalism and building communism for example we would be creating this like utopia right um and I've really fallen away from that kind of thinking and I've kind of, I guess, just moved into this, this sort of way of looking at it in terms of like, what would life look like under a non-capitalist sort of communist or socialist society? And we would still have depression, right? Like we would still be, we would still get depressed. We'd still feel violent. There would still be violence. There would still be all of this stuff that I think is like innately um, and you know, I, I always want to like stray away from talking about human nature with like a capital H and N, but like things that are innate to us in a certain way, like these, oh. this range of emotion that we have this tendency um, for very appropriate reasons to fall into deep, deep grief. And I think that um, what capitalism does and what living under a capitalist society does is it actually doesn't allow you to feel that full range of human emotions. Mm. Like if you wake up feeling for no quote, I'm using square scare quotes for the, the listeners here. Like if you wake up feeling depressed and like shit and you don't have a quote, good reason for it, like you have to go into work, right? Like you don't have the time or space to actually sit with your grief and if you want to like extend that out really far, like you don't have the time to sit for three weeks contemplating the cosmos and then writing a four sentence poem about it. You know, like those are really beautiful parts of like the human condition, feeling tiny in comparison to the universe and feeling a, a certain like depth and sorrow around that or feeling depressed because you're going through grief. Like we just, we don't have the space to feel the full range of, of human emotions under capitalism. And I think, um, I like to think about how under a different system, a more humane system, we would, we would have that space and we wouldn't be like, I saw, um, so hurricane, we're, we're recording this on the day that hurricane, uh, Ian just hit Florida. And I saw a bunch of tweets with screenshots of, of um, news articles and like these like text messages that were se being sent back and forth from business owners, like devising ways to get people to come into work and work today. Mm. 
when like the entire <laughs> like southern coast of, of Florida is like currently underwater. Oh Christ! Um, and so it's just I don't know if I even need to. Better like, bring your scuba gear. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know if I need to say anything about that. Like we all know how fucked up that is, but uh, we don't talk about it. We can't really talk about it in more general spaces because capitalist hegemony. Yeah, it's interesting too to to kind of lead off what you're talking about there. I was I was actually kind of thinking about this subject the other day too, just kind of the range of um you know, human emotions and uh I was relating the subject to um positive positive reinforcement. You know, I kind of go back and forth with my dad on the subject a lot because my dad's a Trump supporter. And, uh, so, so we kind of butt heads a lot. So he's just constantly asking me, you know, just like, what about this? How would this work? You know, I, I think, I think you got it wrong here and this and that and the other, but, um, you know, it's fun to kind of go back and forth with them a lot of the time too. Sometimes it's annoying though, but, but, uh, you know, we were talking about just like what incentives there would be to work in general, you know, because my dad is, uh, you know, he's 85 years old and, He's uh, very much in the mindset that, uh, you know, as he puts it, you know, why would people write a beautiful song if if there wasn't a reward, a potential to get rewarded in houses and cars, you know, or uh, <laughs> <laughs> or whatever else, whatever material possessions one could want for writing a beautiful song. And I'm like, it's just to me, it's just like being a musician, too, you know, and just being you know, being able to sit down and play a beautiful song for the sake of playing a beautiful song to me is just reward in and of itself, you know, and I'm just, you know, uh, sometimes questions like that kind of boggle my mind, but, but to hear them is kind of sobering sometimes because it makes me realize, you know, how much of a backseat these other emotions actually do take to the monetary system a lot of the time and to, um, there's the, the positive reinforcement that money actually does create. It not only becomes positive reinforcement, uh, you know, for jobs and, and labor and things like that, but it also becomes a barrier, you know, to a lot of other things too. And so a lot of the people, they just don't have enough money to get everyday necessities and the things that they, you know, uh, you know, need to survive or even thrive, you know, and, and, and I was thinking about, it, I was like, wow, you know, it kind of makes a lot of sense because that's, that's why a certain, after a certain threshold of money, after a certain threshold of income, people don't really get much happier after a certain point. You know what I mean? There still would be, right. There still is depression, <laughs> you know, after, after a certain income threshold, very much so, you know, because, because money isn't meeting those, very important, you know, other human needs like we have of, of you know, contribution and camaraderie and love and, and family and, and, and things like that. You know, and I think I do think that in the types of societies we are talking about, things would be better. You know, they wouldn't be as bad. We, we would be able to kind of systemically prevent a lot of the violence, a lot of the illness and disease and depression and things like that. But of course, it would still be there, obviously, as well. There's no utopia i mean as the word utopia you know it uh the the root meaning of the word is a place that does not exist a place that cannot exist 
And, um, you know, instead of, I, I, I hear a lot of people cynically say, oh, it'd be a utopia. Oh, I've heard that before, blah, blah, blah. I, I kind of prefer it. To, I, I prefer the word protopia, actually. I don't know if a lot of people have heard this word or not, but protopia is just kind of like the opposite of a dystopia right now. Dystopia is, is this society that we have is this barreling towards the negative end of the spectrum. Um, you know, protopia is just simply the opposite, a society that you know, works in a positive fashion that, that actually improves as, as time goes along, you know, and, and functions with balance and harmony and synergy. It doesn't mean that there's not problems, you know, it doesn't mean that there's not challenges to be overcome. Certainly doesn't mean that everything's perfect and we've figured it all out. You know, we, we constantly have to assess and adjust and reassess and experiment and improve and, and learn from our mistakes because there will always be mistakes moving forward. You know, we're never going going to get to a point in humanity where like, oh, okay, I'm glad we don't make mistakes anymore. That's a thing of the past, you know. But, you know, in reality, we, we can do a heck of a lot better than we are now. And just acknowledging that, I think, you know, and kind of having conversations about like, like we are, you know, having conversations about a society that would function in, in a more positive manner and actually start to regenerate, you know, the planet and, um, solve the, you know, issues of inequality and, you know, heal some of society and social justice and things like that, you know, it, it is possible, but, you know, they ha it has to be brought to the forefront of people's minds first. And so, so that's what we're doing. Anyway. <laughs> I, I just wanted to pick up with that real quick. And then I have a question, um, but I'm going to front load it <laughs> with some ranty bullshit. But yeah, I just, I just wanted to say that, uh, um, Jacques Fresco often said that utopia is dangerous, that even his, you know, the best city he could imagine would be a straitjacket to the children of the future. And I like to think, say a lot that there are more problems, there are more solutions than there are problems, because the problems of today are largely technical, social problems that we can solve. And when those problems are solved, are blinders of like thinking about the dumb, the dumbest things in the world that are our problems like traffic or like, you know, health insurance or these things that are completely in our own machinations. They're not real problems. They're things that we have abstracted out of life. We can get those things out of the way so that we can actually access the full gamut of our ability to imagine and envision and deal with reality that we will be become aware of problems that we could never even see before. Because things were so shitty by our current standards or by the standards of the future anyway, that the people to the future looking back at us would be like, I can't believe you didn't see this. I can't believe you, you know, that in a perpetually improving society that creates feedback loops that are regenerative and positive and healing, that creates betterment all the time. That's the idea of society. I was just thinking the other day, like driving to this horrible city of Atlanta and just seeing at every stoplight, every fucking stoplight, a person with a little sign asking for money. And I just thought these cities are not a machine for improving human life. They are a machine. They're a staging ground for corporations to exploit us, for landlords, for landowners, for these beneficiaries of this capitalist system to exploit and extract and you know have their, their little game, their little ball game with our lives. And it's not about improving our lives. So in the interest of you know creating that system, I, I have here actually this first time we we're holding this up on our show. This is a copy of uh, Moneyless Society, The Next hey. Economic Evolution by a certain Matthew Holton. Ma Ma Matthew Holton, am I saying that right? And uh, this is a not, not for resale in keeping with the, you know, the whole Moneyless ethos. Um, I haven't been able to finish this book, but I've been giving notes and, and helping Matt um, through this process. 
But Adela, you are actually one of the first pe people that has read this book. And so I'm really very curious and interested in anticipating your feedback and what your observations are as, as a shrewd uh, reader. And, a, and a, a gr I bet you've already got some quotes here that you're going to be quoting in, in your future episodes. Yeah, I'll, I'll quote Matthew Holton of the book Money, the Society, you know. <laughs> yes, and thank you for the book. And again, congratulations, Matt. I I was thank you. I was saying to Matt earlier, but I'll, I'll say it again here. Um, the expansiveness, the amount that was covered was just incredible. So really systemic view. And another thing I appreciated was that Matt looks at certain objections that may come up from a reader and then addresses them one at a time. And then the other thing that I loved was that you end with invitations, very real practical things that people can do in their lives. And I try to do that in interviews and conversations. And Robert and I try to do that in our documentaries, try to make it tangible and hands-on for people as they go forth. Um, and I think, you know, in reading the book in preparation for this call and also listening to your content, one of the things that came up for me, I love, Zach, your intro about us being in such, uh, such camaraderie and such shared views on things. One uh, differentiating piece is your focus on money and moneylessness. And I think that's interesting to me because Robert and I have covered so many different topics over the years, right? From universal basic income and worker cooperatives and the sharing economy and the not-for-profit economy and all the things. So we've, we've looked at many topics, but we haven't as much covered finance and money. And we only recently had a, an interview with Brett Scott on the war on cash. And it was really interesting. I learned so much from his book, Cloud Money, and also in talking to him. So, you know, I wanted to ask you, and I know it's very clear in the book, but wanted to ask you, like, the the focus of money, money creation, how money is created, our, you know, value of money in our society, like, why is that such a central uh thing that you've landed on for a root causal challenge? Because even in this conversation, we've talked a lot about capitalism. It seems like we all agree there about that as one of the sure. root cause challenges. But money, I know, I think I could speak for Robert. Mm -hmm. We'd love to hear more about that because I love that that's an influence for you, something you all have landed on and a key theme of both the book and your podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, and that's a great question too. And, um, you know, it's, I think, Money is money is a system that's created a whole lot of other subsystems that kind of work in conjunction with it. And we essentially term all those systems that work together capitalism, you know, these days is, is the current socioeconomic system. And so when we say money, we're not really necessarily just saying, okay, it's money that is, you know, just needs to be done away with while everything else just kind of, you know, will fall into place. In reality, money is a system that works in conjunction with all these un other systems that have created the situation that we have today. And if we, you know, if we do it carefully and wisely, we can obsolete all of these systems and create something better. Um, money in particular, uh, unfortunately, you can't really have money and not have profit. You know, and profit is the main driver, the incentive behind our economy. And unless you just really get rid of money in particular and the competitive aspects of our of our economy in which, you know, the trade based systems and everything, they all operate kind of on this competitive trade based system. Profit is really kind of inextricable from that. You know, you can't you can't really have trade 
on a commercial basis and not have profit. And that goes with cryptocurrencies. That really stands with no matter how many rules and regulations you you can put into place, profit is still going to be there. And as long as profit is still there, that incentive for exploitation, for uh, you know, to cr- that which essentially creates inequality. It's it's the exploitation of resources and of other people that the profit profit motive creates. You know, and without without those, uh, I mean, it's essentially really difficult to get rid of those things without getting rid of money in that entire system altogether, you know, and you can't just say, okay, we're no longer going to have, you know, uh, private property and no more exploitation, this and this, but still kind of use money and still have the incentive for that to be there. It might work for a little while, but sooner or later, those incentives will probably come roaring back to the surface and restructure things in the way that they were originally structured, you know? So the only, the only real way to, to obsolete the system is to obsolete it as a whole, you know, and to create systems and structures that are founded on cooperation, which money is essentially not really founded on cooperation. It's, it's more kind of founded on, you know, um, competition and, and debt and things like that. Not really people working together to achieve something. It's, you know, trade-based IOU, you owe me this and that and the other, as opposed to let, let's just work together to create something, you know? And, um, but yeah, so it, it kind of goes deep into the roots of all these systems kind of being tied together. Essentially, it's not really just so much that money is the root of all evil. Money is a tool, you know, just like a lot of the other things that we, that we have. And, uh, uh, but, it's just a tool that has certain side effects that have created these enormous feedback loops, which have really made the profit central functioning to our economy now. And that, and that just really tends to be the main problem that we keep seeing over and over again, and which I display in the book through causal loop diagrams. It's that success to the successful archetype that keeps coming up over and over again because profit just keeps on being reinvested back into the most profitable things. And it's it's a very simple dynamic that people kind of get, you know, on the surface, but the implications of it run a lot deeper and they've created a lot more problems, uh, you know, in our economy than people have really acknowledged or they realize a lot of the time. And I think putting it that way in the causal loop diagrams kind of helps people really see like how far the problem of the profit motive, how deep that really runs and how many problems it's actually caused, you know, and, and without without really kind of putting it in those diagrams in that way, I think it, it just doesn't really hit home as much if if that makes sense, you know. So I hope that answers I'm, I'm your question. I'm kind of chomping at the bit to uh, answer that question as well because there's Go ahead. so Sorry, many. Zach. No, it's okay. There's just so many levels of it that I understand that money is a bad thing because I have lived for years of my life without it. That I have lived as a, a modern hunter gatherer, hitchhiking and sleeping on couches and eating out of dumpsters and sharing everything with people. And I just see how much better life is without it, that I don't see a single good reason for money to exist other than the mental problem solving of, of imagining beyond it. And it, when I, like I read uh, Brett Scott's book, I really like it. I love, I love, there's so many great passages and metaphors and he's a really fantastic writer. But when people like him, when I read people like him or when I read like Jason Hickel's book, Less is More, I'm very confused as to why it never occurs to them to even really question money. That we, we are so in the, the, it's the water we swim in. It, you know, we talk about going upstream. Well, it's the river. It's the river that has this current, this gravitation that moves in this direction. And it, it's very strange to me 
that it's that we're such a fringe group of people that are actually questioning the thing that is the number one cause of stress in 80% of the world, you know, <laughs> that that this this thing that we live within that did we did not use for the majority of human history for 200 to 300,000 years, we did not use money at all. It never occurred to someone to do that. Or if there was a system like money, which I've interviewed indigenous people and uh like uh, you know, you give people feathers or or beads or or things that they can wear and that show a that are a show of trust. But that's not like somebody who can say, "All right, I'm going to take this pile of feathers and now I have your house." You know, that just would never occur to somebody. I think about this uh, David Graeber um, speech a lot, where he's talking about an anthropologist who goes to a village, and she, everybody brings her a gift, and then she's like, "What do I do? Do I have to give people these gifts back?" And somebody takes pity on her and just says, "Okay, you have to give something back." I mean, you don't want to be rude, but you can't do it right now. And you can't just give them back something equivalent. You can't give them back. They give you an apple. You can't just give them back an orange because that's effectively saying, oh, uh, you don't trust me. You don't want a relationship with me. You don't want to you don't want to be in, in, in this beneficial sort of web of debt where I need you and you need me. We have a system of money, which is a mediation that says I, I, I do this for you and then you do this for me. We're done. We are, we are not interconnected. We are not inextricable. I don't need you and you don't need me. We are independent. And I think this is really the root social cause of money. I mean, if you read a book like uh, like uh, Drive by Daniel Pink and look at all the ways that extrinsic motivation is a detriment, it's, it's bad for problem solving. Even the Federal Reserve in Australia, this is an amazing study. This is a fucking merit badge I wear proudly. The Federal Reserve in Australia did experiments giving people money to do tasks, and they could not disprove the results that every single time the people they did not give money to did better. That you know, artists paid to create paintings, you know, uh, judged by other artists. All of the paintings that were made out of somebody's personal heart were more valued, were better paintings. So you know, if you give a, if you give your kid five dollars to take out the trash, you're, they're never going to do that again without you giving them five dollars to take out the trash. And money, the thing is, it acts on your same dopamine receptor that cocaine does. So you need more of it all the time. This is what we call greed. We call it about greed, like it's this ephemeral thing. It's not. It's a structural biochemical effect of addiction. We have structured our society around something that is addictive. And so you need more of it all the time to get the same dopamine rush. And it you, it wanes over time and it, it makes you risk averse or less risk averse. So you'll do risky shit to get more of it. And that's our whole predicament. It spirals out of this very simple, defective social technology that we've used to mediate and essentially mangle our existence. And then there's the there's the macrocosm that our world game is a fucking game. We're playing a game to take nature, blow it up, turn and to turn it into numbers in a computer. That means no it's, it makes no sense to me that that more people don't just see that this is an absurdity that we are wrapped in, that we are completely disconnected from reality to play this fucking computer game that is now um um, mechanized and automated to the level of being this stock market, which is really an algorithm. It's a it's a monster like robot that is automated, you know, trading. And there is algorithms that uh, actually a friend of mine uh, was really into the Wall Street bets thing and all the crypto and all that stuff. And there was this YouTuber kid, this weird rocker kid who discovered this Elliott Wave pattern, this algorithm that appears everywhere in the stock market, from the micro, like like the, a day transaction, to the macro. That it's an algorithm and it goes up and up and up and it's its purpose we're programming it to is to take life blow it up and turn it into nothingness and i just don't understand i i cannot understand why more people don't see it and aren't talking about it because when we take that thing out all of these all of these possibilities open up of what we can do 
of the, that so many of our limitations are imposed by our need to filter our existence through this mechanism that is fundamentally parasitic, that destroys us on an individual and an interpersonal and an ecological level. That is beyond me. And, and I, I invite anybody listening to this to, to take the pill, you know, to go into that place in your imagination and ask, is there a good reason that we still do this? Is there a good reason that we will construct revolutionary platforms that maintain this, this part of our existence? For what reason? It's like the it was the the paper clip. What is it? The paperclip machine, essentially, the the hypothetical paperclip machine that just keeps producing paperclips, and when it runs out of metal, it just starts you know finding other things to you know make paperclips out of until eventually, it just makes the entire world into paperclips, and for what? It just destroys everything for a for a huge pile of paperclips, and that's essentially where where we're going with the monetary system. It feels like so. But yeah. Just kind of this pointless, this pointless, purposeless thing that, you know, is just exploiting all these resources for, for what end in the long run, you know, and, and the, uh, one, one of the things that gets me about just the monetary system and capitalism in general is just how much endless activity it generates and is needed to keep the entire system going. I feel like we could probably curtail probably 80% of the activity, the commuting, the fossil fuel usage, the energy consumption, the resource consumption, simply by, you know, curtailing the system that has people go out and, you know, work nine to five jobs, 40 hours a week, five days a week. And, uh, you know, just to generate money, so you can pay your bills to survive. And this just never ending cycle of activity of economic more and more economic activity I mean, the, if, look at covid the begin when covid hit for the first time in what 30 40 years we actually had a dip on that uh on that graph that registers how much carbon there is in the atmosphere and it was it's a little tiny blip there but it actually happened it went down there just for a second because that and it wasn't even all the economic activity that capitalism requires. It was just a portion of it, just a portion of the service industries and these other industries where people were getting sick. You know, there was a lot of stuff that was still going on. And we still were able to have that little dip in the carbon that was going into the atmosphere. And so we know it's possible. We know it's possible that we, we can see the proof there on the graphs that we can curtail that sort of thing, you know, and we can survive too. We all sat at home. We were just like, wow, this is interesting. Nobody's working, but everybody's still alive. <laughs> Like maybe we could do this again sometime, huh? <laughs> uh, anyway, so I'm I'm curious what y'all's impressions are of of the whole of the whole thing. This is the moment of like anticipation when I like it's like unveiling yourself. It's like coming out or something, you know. It's like you know speaking this truth that that to to me, I mean, at least seems so redolent and obvious um, that I I just I just I want everybody to understand it and to see this perspective because I've just. I've lived through so many things that really squeezed me into this, this consequence or this, this understanding. And it's, it's, this is the mandate to communicate this, this solutionary, you know, this, 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 this imaginary world that, you know, just grows and grows the more people see it. Robert, what do you think? What are you thinking? I, I think we share the vision um, of a moneyless society. I think that, um, you know, the famous, famous um, description of uh, the classless, stateless, moneyless society. I think that we would all share that vision. Um, I think that 
for me, I don't see money as being one of the central pillars of capitalism. And um, I keep thinking back to the sort of um, MCM and, and CMC relationship of money and commodities. Um, and that for the vast majority of the sort of period of humanity where people were engaging in market activities uh, prior to what we could call capitalism, it was, I have some money, I'm trading it for, or I, I, have, uh, I have a commodity, I'm trading it for money to get another commodity. Um, so you start with money, you start with a commodity rather, C is in the equation, and then you end with a commodity, C. Mm -hmm. Under capitalism, you have a completely different relationship to money and commodities. You're using money to purchase a commodity and then sell that for more money. That's where profit comes in. Um, I think that I, I do see profit as being the root, one of the, the many, many roots of the tree of, of uh, you know, what we're, what we're experiencing right now with all the challenges we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the profit motive, I think the, that addiction comes into the profit as well. Like the more profit that you can accumulate, the more you're viewing money as this meta commodity. Um, so I do think there's a lot of overlap and alignment there. I think that I just focus more in, in the way that I analyze stuff about the profit part of money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, and that makes a lot of sense too. Sorry, sorry, Del, I'll, I'll just wanted to jump in really quick. And one of the main reasons why I chose the name Moneyless Society is because that was of the website that was available 10 years ago. And I really liked the name. <laughs> and it was name. like you and it was like you said, uh, you know, classless, stateless, moneyless society. And, and I was looking at the whole idea of a resource based economy. And I was like, well, you know, it kind of sounds a lot like communism, but is it really? Well, it's kind of different. But hey, you know what? Nobody's taken the name moneyless society. Maybe maybe I'll, maybe I'll give I, that a shot. You know, yeah, right. Exactly. You know, and, and I mean, it, it's a great name, you know, and other names that are kind of like it wouldn't have been. Any, anywhere near as catchy you know like profitless society or capitalist list society or you know doesn't quite have the same ring to it you know but but it, it was a good title and it gets people thinking about the whole subject and it's also just kind of a broad topic too how could we create a moneyless society you know it really kind of gets people discussing the subject and throwing ideas out there and it you know it's not a it's not a phrase that really kind of sets it in stone either it's it's kind of it kind of creates an open discussion around the subject which um which was a lot of what we were doing especially Especially when the when first started like 10 years ago with this whole organization and website and everything, you know, and, and now it's kind of morphed into a greater understanding and a book and a movement and a podcast and all this, you know, but the name still remains. So, <laughs> yes, and I, I do really appreciate this conversation. It was something I was really excited to talk to you about. Um, 
And I think for me, one of our most inspiring conversations that we've had on Upstream is with Jennifer Hinton, who wrote a book called How on Earth Flourishing in a Not-for-Profit World. And she's also a systems thinker, and she also has systems diagrams, but it's all about profit. And her thing is, let's have profit-generating activity that is then harnessed for social and mission, social and environmental mission-driven good. And and so she has the, the loop of like the real economy, and then the siphon out of the real economy is the profit Mm -hmm. and and then that leads to inequality and and everything like that and so your your addition about money is really fascinating i need to chew on it i think a little bit but i wrote down here like is there anything that i wouldn't be i is there anything i would feel okay with still being in the market right because we may agree Mm -hmm. like you know education and healthcare and you know housing and you know all that shouldn't be on the market but what what would i be like could i still buy sunglasses like so i'm i am curious (laughs) like where i would still want money in this utopia or through utopia that we're thinking but um yeah just a lot to think about so deeply grateful for you and your work on this topic yeah absolutely it's a a great response well, thanks. I appreciate that too. And and I've I've kind of thought about similar things too. Just you know, was is it you know is money like in just are we like in unjustly persecuting money here? You know, almost inadvertently. I think you know. And I'm just kind of like, well, you know, from I I I've yet to find a way to keep money around and eliminate the profit motive and that kind of that's kind of been the defining factor for me a lot of the ways, you know, it's just like, well, if we still have money around, then the profit motive is still around. And for me, I haven't really wrapped my head around a way to keep money in the market system functioning, but to, but that still eliminates the profit motive. And um, for me, that's kind of like the deciding factor there is if we can, you know, if there's some way to eliminate the profit motive by, you know, structures like that, but, but, in reality, I think it would only just be regulations, which could always be overturned in the future, you know? And so I'm just kind of like, hmm, well, that's just, but any, in any case, so. <laughs> On the subject of that sort of money markets uh, phenomenon, I think my f- absolute favorite passage in Brett Scott's book was that metaphor of like the, the monster in the, ca- in the mountain. And, and it's this metaphor that I won't go into it now, but it's basically like the history of money and markets is that money was created by armies it's, it's always been a violent colonial tool that, that uh, armies going way farther than they should have, uh, led by Alexander the Great, needed a store of value so that they could carry their goods and things like that, and they could sell, you know, traffic with people. And so when they would go conquer somebody, they would enforce taxation upon them through, the, through their money and say, okay, you owe us this every year. And so that creates the market because it creates the demand that everybody in that city or that city-state needs that money, they need that little token with the picture of the emperor on it once a year so that they can pay that colonizing force. And I mean, that is just so incredibly violent and Mm. so destructive. And that all the chaos that happens out of the market in the metaphor, it's like the monster like colonizing them actually gets more uh, of what he wants out of them because of the machine that develops of all the market practices of people trading and selling and you know this class of gamers who are able to trade and buy and sell better they're able to get this monster that controls us and that has colonized us more of what it needs to live or what it wants to extract out of us and so i just see going back to the early history of this stuff it's never been good it's never there was like as graber pointed out there was never like a, a land of barter 
where we were beneficently trading money for each other. It only happened after money was forced upon people in this very violent colonial process that I still see continuing today. Uh, we, we can we can continue. I was going to let uh, yeah. let uh, um, Robbie and Della um, do like a little uh, outro with some insights or or what was it? Cool. invitations as well. <laughs> but Matt, if you want to sign off, we can, we're going to yeah. I'm going to go. I'm going to go ahead well. and sign off. It was wonderful talking to you both. We'll have to hop on another call soon and and do it again for sure. Thank you so much, Matt. Yeah, really great to meet you, Matt. Thanks a lot. You too. All right, we'll talk soon. Have a good one. Balls in your court. <laughs> Yeah, I, go ahead, uh, Rob. Sorry. Uh, no, if you had some, I, I was just confused if we were, if there was a question or if we were just going to do like an outro or what. But if you had something to say, Della, go ahead and I'll just uh, piggyback off you. No, I, I, I guess I just wanted to summarize where I'm at from this moment because actually, and so Robert doesn't even know this, but we had this one person, one uh, person on Instagram who was saying a lot of things like every time we'd post something, they'd be like, you're missing the real thing. And the real thing is money and how money is created and money, money, money. And uh, I think they were blocked on our Instagram account. <laughs> and then, so they emailed me and I, I actually was like, okay, you think we're missing something? What are we missing? And they've been totally educating me with all these <laughs> emails and papers and all sorts of things. Who, who is this person? It's I, I don't know if I want to say their name. <laughs> But, but, but the main point, actually, you know what? I sent them the Moneyless Society. I was like, "Are these folks onto what you're saying?" And then, and he said, "Yes, actually, they are." So I think all, like, all I'm trying to say is, I think that I am recognizing that I have a gap of my explaining and speaking about economics and capitalism. I have largely overlooked money, and that, to, to be honest, has been due to a um, discomfort about talking about money and the money system. And I, I just have a personal interest in learning more and uh, being able to talk about it more. So, for example, like I said, Jennifer Hinton's work, which is all about a not-for-profit economy, I really, really enjoy and speak highly of. And yet it's still in the money frame. So, so I'm just learning, even as we're speaking, about you know, our own blind sites or gaps to our understanding and how to be more holistic in in our activism and our approach. Like, you know, when I think about, when I go upstream, I the way that I usually frame this through learning with Robert from all of our guests is that, you know, first we have the economic challenges of our time, climate change, inequality, houselessness, precariousness, alienation. When I go upstream from that, I find supremacies, so capitalism and uh, white supremacy, global south supremacy you know all the other supremacies right supremacy of humans over nature eco supremacy or human supremacy of over nature and then when i go upstream from that i find separation so separation of ourselves from our passions or purpose our bodies separation from one another and separation from the more than human world so then i go back downstream like we need to remember our place in the web of life and remember our connections with one another and then going down from that instead of supremacy we need power with so solidarity and mutual aid and connection but in in talking with you and in reading the book i'm wondering if separation of money from what matters is a separation that i hadn't been thinking of and if there's a supremacy there of supremacy 
supremacy of growth of profit, but supremacy also of money as the ultimate symbol of value. So I'm just already adding to my own upstream journey through your work. And yeah, so I just want to kind of summarize like where I'm at, because I just, again, love that you said we're in such alignment at the top of the show. And yet for me, there's just this growing, it's not a tension, but a little bit of a difference in framing that I actually appreciate because it draws out lessons possibly for all of us. Yeah, no, I, I just, I love that. Uh, that's like the, really the ideal response, you know, to sharing something that, you know, is so, um, it's taken so long to gestate and, and to develop and to articulate that I feel so strongly about. And um, I feel the same way, you know, like, a, like reading Brett's book, like I was confused why he didn't just kind of zoom out and say like, hey, why do we do this thing at all? But I, I learned so much from it and, and it helped me sharpen my understanding. And you know, with Jason and with, you know, every, every person you've ever had on your show that I've listened to. And I, truthfully, I don't listen to that many podcasts. I um, do more talking than uh, listening in that sphere. <laughs> but no, I mean, every time I've listened to a show, uh, an episode of your show, I learn something. And I'm, I'm just constantly in this, this constantly like unreconstructed, you know, deconstructing, reconstructing this cycle of like learning and growing all the time. And that's, I just, I'm never planting my feet. I, I, I will, I, if I ever get to the point where I stop and say, I'm, I'm, I'm here, this is it. I've got it. Put a bullet in my head. Cause I'm done. You know, we need to be constantly growing and evolving and in the spirit of that protopia, that, that, you know, it, eternally regenerative, you know, developmental innovating, you know, fluid creation that we are making that is society or that it could be, you know, the idea of saying, this is enough, this is far enough. I've gone far enough and this is it. And, you know, basically it's forming a compromise with reality. And I think that to be an emergent uh, understanding and right relation with reality is to always have that the little bit of restlessness that I think is so human, you know, not necessarily full-blown depression, but like saying things can be better. Not that things are bad, not that focus of like, that a lot of people, you know, see my <laughs> worldview and are depressed by it and think that, you know, it's just all negative, but it's not. It's that to really arrive at the conclusion, not just make it up out of your head, but to really arrive at the conclusion scientifically of a better world and of a process of improvement, it is to really feel all these dark feelings and all the negative effects of this society that we've lived in. And it's been my blessing to have a very hard, difficult, alienated life, to be a fucking space alien for my entire existence that never, I was never really like a part of the whole or of society as we know it or embraced into normal. So it's all seemed very weird and strange to me. And that's enabled me to critique things with, with more courage or maybe fear of the right things propelling me into really just taking it all apart. So yeah, I, I appreciate you guys as always. I always learn when I talk to you or listen to you and I just love the way your mind works. And I just personally like that call we had on Monday or whenever it was where I was just like, I, you know, I feel like a little boy in this world. Like I can understand these complex systems and envision these beautiful possibilities, but I just really struggle so much with this world and money is the biggest thing that's never made sense to me. So I'm more willing to question it. I'm more willing to throw it away because I see no single good use for it. I've only been hurt by it and I only see people. I just, I just, I'm feeling, I'm like hearing all the cups of the guys on street corners jangling right now in my head and it just hurts me. It's like this anti-music that just is, is pushing me, you know, along this path and along this, this line of thinking and questioning. And I just, I, I, I want to bring in more people to ask that question. How can we move beyond this? How can we do better? 
And so bringing you guys into the conversation is, is a, you know, a great thing. Disagreements and all. So um, as we kind of uh, come up on time here, I would love to give the both of you um, room to um, bring, bring anything full circle or any observations or insights or things that are bubbling up or um, invitations, as you said, you know, how, how we can take this, take our own conversation, our own journey and, and, and um, push it further. Robert, would you like to go first? You make me go first all the I, time. I can go first. No, I'll go first. I'll go first. Um, um, I'll, I'll think okay. as you go. I'll, I'll try to formulate something too because I didn't have anything pop up immediately. Yes, I have some invitations for all of us as we go forth from this time together. Um, first, I love that we, we started with that upstream question. Thank you, Zach. I always love hearing it and, and hearing other people's responses. So I invite folks listening to go on that journey upstream. So to take whatever challenges or heartbreak that they're experiencing in the world and figure out what are those root causes and, and explore for themselves and also with others. I think it's a beautiful prompt that I don't think Robert and I will ever be done with. So I, I really welcome that. The second thing, another theme that came up was visioning and whether you believe in protopia, utopia, or as I mentioned, I've heard this frame through topia, which is how do we get to the utopia? How do we get there? Which I love. Um, another uh, kind of dichotomy or another frame that I was thinking about is realism and idealism and wondering if we on this call were idealists or are idealists and i'm thinking of satish kumar he once said you know okay what has i what has realism got us it's gotten us war and climate change and you know basically all the social and ecological challenges of our time we're done with realism now is the time for idealists and i think idealism oh, is something I yes that. i think is idealism is something that pulls us into the future and it, it will never be reached but it does continue to help us cultivate right relation to things and to continue to try to um build or contribute to a more just beautiful and regenerative world and i i really heard that in everything we said right where it's like okay communism or the if the revolution succeeds we still will have some life challenges so how do we continue to evolve in ways that feel life supportive and thriving so i invite folks to vision and to explore idealism in their lives and to vision protopia utopias and throughtopias um, and then uh, I also invite us all, including myself, I'm really going to sit with this, to think of what does what is our role of money? Is money bad? Um, when is our relationship with money healthy? When, you know, how could we cr cultivate a uh, post-capitalist, post-growth, post-profit world? And if we did, what would the role of money be? if anything. So I want to continue to marinate that on that. What would we be okay with still having money for? It's a question, right? And I want to uplift a quote that I heard recently. I don't know who said it, but money is commodified grief. Money is commodified grief. I think that as, as Marxists, we can really appreciate that, that frame. Um, I know I've been loving that, that way to think about it. Um, so dreaming on or thinking about what would a moneyless society look and feel like and how can you invite that into your life right now? What are the mutual aid, the gift giving, the receiving practices that you can engage in both with nature and with your neighbors and your communities? So how can you bring in more of that intrinsic values, intrinsic motivation and um, 
like you said, Zach, that kind of mutual indebtedness that comes with gift giving and supporting one another, that, you know, that's what we really need to do right now is invest in each other and invest in community. So explore the moneyless society in our own lives. And then finally, the last thing is invite some libera- <laughs> liberation psychology into your conversation. So although we, we all discussed how uh, we may be the ones at the party <laughs> I, that are the fun killers, so to speak. I know when my brother was getting engaged, he was afraid to tell <laughs> me about the engagement ring because he knew I would ask systemic questions about the minerals and the quality of the labor regulations and where it was coming from and all of that. So I too am a fun killer in a lot of conversations. And so in the positive frame though, how can we invite those systemic questions? So the next time somebody tells you they're feeling depressed or anxious or unwell, it may be due to a very real understandable life situation like the loss of a loved one or a breakup, for example. And there may be a possibility it's due to our systemic dis-ease. So how could invite how could you invite those just prompts, those questions, those you know, reflections into the conversation to give them a little taste of liberation in their daily lives. Over to you, Robert. Well, that was, I'm sorry, real quick. I just want to, I just want to put my hands up in the air for that. That was beautiful. And I just want to add a little sub uh, invitation to that. You know, when, when you push those buttons on people and when you peel their world apart, do it like Bella. (laughs) Go ahead, Robert. Um, I was thinking of uh, that uh, that trope that we're all just Venmoing back and forth the same thirty dollars within our friend group, you know, paying back <laughs> for like dinner, and then you're getting Somebody it back. Somebody said and that yesterday. It. Literally the same. The yeah, same it's it's a phenomenon, and um, I think that's definitely something that I think of when we talk about how, like, the hegemony of 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 money, right? Like. We, I, I always like when my partner asks if she should Venmo me um, like half of dinner or something, I'm always like, you know, I'll just get it next time or I'm not even really thinking about it. Like it's, it's all good. Like you can sense if something feels unbalanced, you'll feel it before like, well, at least like if, if you're thinking about it, like for me, I'll, I'll sense that there's an imbalance in a relationship right like and that usually comes from deeper things it's not because you didn't venmo me 30 bucks after we ate and so i always like i try to go through the world without thinking in that mentality um not in every instance but like with friends with people that um you know i'm comfortable with i know that we already have a relationship it doesn't need to be monetized like we can just not venmo the the same 30 dollars back and forth all the time and I think in a way that that might be part of like, I guess, how I try to practice um, dissipating the hegemony of money and what comes with that a little bit in my, my daily life. And so I do appreciate the emphasis that you all put on that. And I think there's so many threads and a lot to unpack there. And, um, you know, it's cool to be able to pull on a few of those with you today. You too. And I really appreciate both of you deeply. And if I could jump in here, I just... Uh... Venmoing the same money back and forth, then I was thinking, well, does Venmo get any of that money? And then who owns Venmo? I don't know if you know, but PayPal owns Venmo. And then who owns PayPal? eBay owns PayPal and Venmo. 
So it's like, just I'm just thinking about Brett Scott again and the the siphoning of real wealth. So just to add another, uh, like imploring folks to not do the same Venmo back and forth and instead to, yeah, rely on reciprocity and gift economy. Yeah, it's like, it's like, um, it's like gift cards. Like I always tell my family members, like, do not get me a gift card. Do not launder your affection for me through a corporation. Just express, make, make me, weave me a basket. How about that? I don't know. Or just tell me you love me. I don't need a thing. First of all, second of all, if you must give me something, just give me like liquid resources that I can convert into what, you know, it's like that. Yeah. That the, that's a critical value shift. And I think when we talk about the revolution of our values and how we interact with each other, how we make every single interaction, not just social media, not just the, the picket sign or the, uh, the protest to make the, that revolution and the activism that uh, must seep into every single social relationship in our lives for us to be that loving, righteous, not fun killer, but really to be the source of like, as I see it, that this is our, we're, we've been robbed of our story and we've been given this little handful of tokens and said, this is you, this is what you're worth. You know, and even the richest person in the world looks out from his high rise and feels limited because that's what I'm worth. I'm a, I'm, I'm consciousness experiencing itself, but that's what I'm worth. No, I'm worth more than that. We're, we're worth more than that. And I think when we place our identification in our personal success, in our personal, um, combat with each other to survive, just kind of what this is. We, we're living in this valuation based upon scarcity. And that's what a post-scarcity society means to move our mentality out. It doesn't mean there's not a, a real limitation on the amount of stuff we can rip out of the planet. It means we're not basing value in how rare something is. We're basing it in how abundant it is. We're basing it in the amount of joy that it brings us. We're basing it in the relationship. You know, we, we talk a lot about a resource-based economy. That was Jacques Fresco's term. But I like to think a lot about a, a relationship-based economy that as, as all things, you know, as, as relationships are what change people's minds, not arguments, that relationships are the true currency that I have in this world. That's all I have. All I have are relationships. And that makes me a rich person. And so I think in pulling these commodifications out of our lives and these mediations of these very predatory, very corporate, very world-killing apparatuses that we mediate, you know, without even thinking about it, we think it's normal. We think it's the way that the world is and should be and has always been this way. And it's not. And I just... Imag invite imagination, you know, to really try to go. I mean, it, it takes breaking your whole brain down and the way you think everything. And that sounds scary, but it, it's also so liberating to, you know, to, to realize always things could be better. Rock on. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. also so liberating to you know to, to realize always things could be better <sighs> well that was another great episode I wish I could have been there for it I'm just so tired <sighs> so tired it's so late and I'm honestly a little overwhelmed but no time to slow down let's see I answered their questions I checked all those messages. I um, I sent those emails. Um, I did touch base with our lawyer, and uh, I filed all the papers. And I researched that tax code. Man, that was a learning curve. Um, 
schedule the next board meeting. I scheduled our social media post for the next few days. You know, that that's cool. Um, nuclear war might break out any moment, but at least our social media posts are up. <sighs> I think I think I think I think I feel my um anxiety. Um how how is it empty? Well, here's another notification. And, and another one. Mom, can you pick me up? Oh, sure, j just a few minutes. Hold, hold, hold on, I, I thought you didn't need picking up till tomorrow. Um, okay. Uh, that That's not what we planned. Uh, okay, another notification. Um, um, I, d I just need to answer these notifications, apparently. Uh, another notification? Okay, hold on. You can only answer so many Last day to once. file your taxes. Uh, last day? It's almost midnight. I don't have time for that. It's an hour to midnight. I, I, I don't know how much more I can take. Why? Why are all of these things happening at once? Life is so inundating these days. Um, okay. Let me, let me start crunching numbers, I guess. Uh, okay. M more notifications. Um, uh, oh, it's Maria. She wants to know if we can work on some funding next week. Well, we do need some funding. Um, let, let me see here. I know next week's schedule is already pretty tight. Google, what does my schedule look like next week? Don't forget to pay the rent. Did you get the yard mode yet? Mm -mm. Podcast recording in one hour. But Early morning work meeting tomorrow. But it's Saturday. Pay your bills. Uh, pay well, health care yeah. bills. Um, Call insurance I don't company. know if I have enough. That takes forever. mom. Reschedule. Call with mom rescheduled. Thank you. Stop at the bank after work. Okay. Work late. Mm -hmm. Work late. That yeah, sounds about right. Work late. Mm -hmm. Three Early days? Morning work meeting. In a row? Go shopping. Shopping, right, because we have... Why? Why? Why am I still getting notifications? I, I thought I'd done everything I needed to do this week. I can't. I can't do this anymore. It's just ridiculous. Oh, it's just Marlo. Okay, well, this, this shouldn't be too bad. It's always nice to hear from Marlo. Um, hmm. Hey, did you record that outro for the Upstream podcast releasing tomorrow? Thanks. Tomorrow? T tomorrow. But, but I've got so much other stuff to do. <laughs> I don't have time for all of this. This isn't activism. I'm not helping anybody. I'm not feeding anyone. I'm not planting any trees. I'm not changing the world. I'm pushing pencils. Please, please help us get past the pencil pushing stage. We can and will evolve, but it will take everyone. It might sound silly, but the things you can do to help are actually free. Follow, like, subscribe, comment, share. It all makes an impact because we are fighting a system that's run by algorithms. If we want to spread awareness, we've got to get your help to do it. And you can also donate. Yes, donate money to Mindless Society. Listen, the light bulb was created in the shadows of candlelight. So I don't want to hear it, okay? And um, also, I'm out. I'm done. Good night. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Come again. <laughs>